so I've been a Bay Area sports fan uh, all my life. Uh, grew up here, and so uh, in other words, I'm very accustomed to pain. Um, and uh, I look back on my history of living here, cheering for the teams, and man, there are so many moments where you know, it just brings tears to my eyes, but not in a good way. Uh, I think about 2002, the Barry Bonds-led Giants team that went to the World Series and then fell apart against the Angels. I think about the 3-1 Warriors, which lost to LeBron. Uh, I, I think about the Niners and, and being a, a, a huge, huge Niners fan. I think of the, the Super Bowl against the Ravens, against the Chiefs. Um, and I think about tonight when uh, my wife and I are going down to watch the Niners game in this weather. Uh, pray for us. Um, but there's just so much pain uh, and suffering that comes. Uh, and and I, I promise you, I'm not doing this on purpose. I'm not trying to make you feel the pain. But I, I was trying to think back, uh, especially as we were, uh, as I was considering what to speak about uh, as I was looking at this passage, uh, this idea of, of standing firm. Uh, and all I could come up, only examples I could come up with were the exact opposite. <laughs> and, and it was seeing teams fall apart right at the very end, crumple under the pressure, be unable to, to withstand the the, uh, the, the pressures of, of the game. And, and yet, what we see in today's passage as we finish off First Peter is the exhortation to do the opposite. In fact, to stand firm uh, as suffering comes. Uh, if you've been with us uh, for the past season, as we've talked about First Peter, we've talked a lot about suffering because the, the book addresses suffering again and again and again. Uh, and I, I think we recognize that as Christians, suffering is a natural part of being a follower of Christ. Not that we are to seek out suffering, uh, but rather as we obediently follow Christ, what happens is suffering comes uh, because we live in a world that hates our God. And so as his followers, we are not to be surprised when the world hates us too. Uh, and, and so as Peter is about to sign off on this letter, he gives one final exhortation to his people to stand firm. And this proves to be prophetic and necessary as not long after this, um, the empire-wide persecution of Christians begins under Emperor Nero. And uh, for us today, we need these words. Not because we are under world, you know, a, a country-wide persecution, but, but we as Christians naturally will encounter suffering and will encounter pain if we have not already. And so what Peter's desire for us uh, is that we are to stand firm. Stand firm uh, regardless of what comes our way. And so we're going to look at three ways in which we are to stand firm. And the first one uh, is to stand firm by casting all your anxieties on God. To cast all your anxieties on God. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Uh, here we have a call to humility again. Uh, earlier passage was a call uh, to humility for the church, for all of us, towards one another. We are to humble ourselves, whether we are leaders, deacons, elders, or just a person, a young person in the church. We are to humble ourselves uh, towards one another. And here, in verse 6, we have a, a call to humble ourselves towards one another, or towards God, rather. All right? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. In other words, put yourself under his hand. Allow him to care for you, to take care of you, uh, especially as you endure suffering. Then at the proper time, he may exalt you. In other words, as you put yourself under the care of God, when the time is right, when he deems it is good for you, he will lift you up. He will raise you up out of your pain and your suffering. He will take care of you. And there's vagueness here, right? It's not specific when he will uh, exalt you, but we just know that at the proper time, when God says it's right, 
he will lift you up. And so I think there's this vagueness here that is given on purpose so that it applies to all of us and each of us in our situations uh, to, to at least let us know that God is going to work and he's going to respond at the right time. Then that's why the promise is he will. He will exalt you, elevate you, raise you up, and he will lift you up in the manner he deems the best for you. Now, what we do know is that these sufferings that we endure are not purposeless. Right? There's some reason that he allows you to go through these things, whether it's to grow you in love for himself, right? to grow you in dependence on him, or, or to show you and reveal to you the, the, the sins in your life that are affecting you. And, and yet, for all God's people, all we can know is that at the right time, when we have learned, when we have grown or led to him, he exalts us. But how are we to humble ourselves before him? What are we to do? What, what, is, uh, our, our, what, what step are we supposed to take? Uh, if you know, verse 6 and 7, is, it's one sentence. It's not two sentences. And, and I think here, Peter gives us uh, uh, an understanding of how to humble ourselves before God. Verse 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Right? We humble ourselves by casting our anxieties on God, by giving all our worries, our, our concerns to him, and placing it on our God and it's to, to release that vice grip we have on our worries. They're the things that, they, that just trouble us. Uns- and and it's, Peter's telling us we need to let go of that and place it on our Father. It's to say, I, I can't do anything about the situation, but God, you can. I can't change it, even though it's, it hurts so much. But I know your mighty hand is able to, and I cannot. And so I let you do it. I, I'm going to uh, put it in your hands. And not only do I know you're mighty and able to, but you care for me. Right? That, that amazing uh, little add-on right there. But uh, because he cares for you, you can cast your anxieties on him because this God is not an impersonal God, but rather a personal God who seeks to know you, to know your pain, to know your burdens and your suffering, to know you fully as you are, wherever you are. And so, in other words, Paul understands that we cannot be truly humble before God if we are so fixated and obsessed about our worries and our anxieties. You cannot be humble if you are too fixated on yourself. Very obvious sentence there, and yet how guilty are we, how regularly guilty are we of doing this? We cannot be humble if we are so fixated on ourselves. Is this not rebuking? Our anxious hearts betray us. They reveal the pride within us that we believe it's up to us, that I can fix it. I can solve my issues. You see, someone who is truly humble casts all their anxieties on God, knowing that they are in good hands because he cares for them, because he's mighty. And as a result, a humble person is fully reliant on God and not himself. They're free. There's this freedom that comes with humility because a humble person doesn't need to be obsessively in control of their situation. And I'm not talking about carelessness here, but there's a certainty to the fact that the God who is in control takes care of me and is able to do all things. Therefore, I can be freed from my uh, burdens, my anxieties. Friends, let me ask you, what keeps you up at night? What troubles you so deeply that every moment you have, whether it's in silence or, or whether you're not uh, working on anything, and you think you're, you know, you're trying to fall asleep or drive or in your shower, whatever, what is it that pops up constantly and nags at you for attention? 
Deal with me. Deal with me. You need to fix me. What is it? I need you to understand the, the feeling of worry or anxiety isn't wrong in and of itself. I believe that's part of what it means to be human. We see Jesus so overwhelmed by that burden of having to be crucified in the garden that he's sweating blood tears. All right, And, and, and then we see Paul constantly worrying about his, his uh, churches and, and their struggles against sin. The, the worry, the feeling of anxiety or worry in, it, in and of itself I don't think is wrong, but when we stop going to God for help and we start putting it on ourselves, that's when it becomes a sin issue. Because life sucks sometimes. There's immense difficulties at times. There are things that make us concerned as we see sin around. But when we grasp onto the, the steering wheel and we say, God, I can do it, that's when we start sinning. And that's what Peter wants to warn us against. It's, it's our pride when we want to be masters over our own condition and we end up staring ourselves into pits. Is it not? And see, we need to learn from Peter. To remember first that our God is a mighty God. He's able to do all things. He calls God's hand mighty, not because he's just looking for a random adjective, but because he truly believes that God is able to do all things. And if that's the truth, then there's nothing outside of the realms of of, of possibility when it comes to God helping his children out of their suffering. And Peter's saying, look, we have a mighty God who has a mighty hand. Nothing is outside of his power. Second, that means... He needs to remember, and we need to remember, that God cares for you. This is, again, not just a random tidbit or a fun fact about God, but rather that this is a personal God who has a relationship with you and me. He has sought to know us fully in our brokenness, to know us in the deepest ways possible. And the crazy thing is that even when he knows us to our full brokenness, he says, I still care for you. And I will continue to care for you till the end. And you see, we need both of these things about God to be true. Both his mightiness and his caring heart. Because if you have a mighty God and yet he is not caring, you have a dictator who has infinite power and yet does not give you a moment of the day. And when you get crushed, he will not blink an eye. And yet if we have a caring God who is so caring and yet has no might, We have a weak, impotent divine who really, you know, it it breaks his heart to see you suffer. He's weeping with you. He feels you. And he will certainly be at your funeral mourning your loss. But he can't do a darn thing to save you. That's also worthless. And yet Peter wants to point out, we have a God who is mighty and caring. He is both. And therefore, that is fantastic news. We can cast all our anxieties on him because he is able to handle it and because he wants it from us. He says, tell me what's going on. Parents in here, you know what that's like. You you are mightier than your child. You're not mighty like God, but you're mightier than your child. And you want your child to say, Dad, I'm hurting. There's no parent in here who doesn't want to hear what's going on in 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 their child's heart or their child's life. And he's saying, tell me. I can withstand it. I can handle it. And I can deal with it on your behalf. And I will care for you. And that will never change. Therefore, cast all your anxieties on me. Put it all on me. I can take it. And if that's true, then we are able to withstand anything. We are able to stand firm no matter what comes our way. And that leads us to our second point, which is stand firm by resisting the devil. Look at verse 8 with me. Peter warns us, 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter (laughs) warns us you need to be careful because your enemy, the devil, is walking around looking for someone to kill, to swallow up whole. This thing is ready to pounce at any moment, and it's hungry. You see, this is Peter's exhortation. You have to understand, he doesn't give us these exhortations just because he's like, you know, might as well throw it out there uh, as a, you know, an encouragement. You know, try it if you, if you can. And I think that's our sinful tendency. Sometimes we see resist the devil and we're like, eh, yeah, I guess I'll try that. But you have to understand, Peter's exhortation is given to us because we have a tendency to not be sober-minded, to not be watchful. We're lethargic. We need this reminder, and that's why he gives it to us. Be watchful. Be sober-minded. A few years, what's this like? A few years ago, I don't know if you guys recall this, there was a viral video about a different kind of lion, a lion of the sea, all right? And and we see this family that's filming the sea lion in the water as they're on the pier, and it's really cute, doing, you know, all kind of cute tricks, popping its face out of the water, uh, and it's it's super adorable, right? People are laughing, they're giggling, it's like, oh, it's so cute. Uh, They stick their hand out to pretend they're feeding it, it pops its head out further out of the water, and they're like, wow, that's great. Then their daughter, a little girl, sits down on the pier, and disaster strikes. The sea lion pops out, grabs the kid, pulls her underwater. How many of us are like that with the devil? Not sober-minded, not watchful. We think we're in some sort of vacation where we're just kind of playing around. We're looking at this cute little feline. We're like, oh, it's so adorable. Like, there's nothing to worry about. And we're unaware that this beast is ready and willing to devour us whole. And Peter's saying, do you recognize you have an enemy that is seeking actively to kill you? And this warning needs to serve as a wake-up call for us, like not lousy, drowsy, sorry, drowsy and lethargic believers, those of us who are asleep in our faith. Friend, how often have we been that Christian? How often have we been unaware, distracted, oblivious to the fact that there's a war going on around us, and we have an adversary who's waiting to pounce? Or distracted by the events of the day, about the the next thing to be outraged about. We're lusting after things with no eternal value. We're content with having our our fancies tickled by whatever comes our way, whatever pops up. We don't give a second to worry or think about the fact that we have an enemy who is actively seeking to kill. Wayne Grudem says this, The opposite of this sober watchfulness is this kind of spiritual drowsiness in which one sees and responds to situations no differently than unbelievers. And God's perspective on each event is seldom, if ever, considered. In other words, when we are not sober-minded, we look like the world because we act like the world. We are not aware of what is going on around us. We are not alert. And on the flip side, when we are alert, when we are sober-minded, we are people who respond as as people who've been loved by God, people who recognize that the Lord stands behind them. They they, they recognize that they are confident in the promises of God. These are people who are ready to go to war because their God has gone before them and stands by their side. They are ready for anything that comes, for any enemy that seeks to devour them. They are equipped and ready to fight. How many of us are aware of this reality, that we're in the middle of a war field? Peter says to us, Wake up, pay attention, so that when the devil attacks, and it's not if the devil attacks, it is when he attacks, we are ready. We're able to respond. We're equipped and prepared. 
no matter what he throws at us because we've been given the ability to do so. Therefore, in verse 9, Peter says this, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter tells us to resist not as a meaningless platitude, but because he knows we can resist. The exhortation is to resist because you can, you are able to. Resist, not because you can think about it and perhaps ponder, but rather because God has made it possible for us not just to survive this battle, but to win and be victorious in our battle against our enemy. It's like Paul in Ephesians 6, where he talks about the armor of God. Right? Paul and Peter both believe that we've been equipped with God's protection, with God's offensive and defensive weapons in order to be victorious against the devil. It says this in Ephesians chapter 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Again, stand firm. You are able to stand against the schemes of the devil, able to withstand the evil day. You are able to resist him. And that's why Peter exhorts us to be firm in our faith. Faith is what gives us the power to fight, God-given power to fight in this war. It's our greatest weapon. It is the God-given faith which is able to withstand all things. Faith is what gives us victory over sin, over the devil. And I know some of you guys see this passage, and perhaps you question it. Right? You have this feeling of despair and defeat that keeps coming back and back and back, and there's these temptations that hit you. There's these lies the devil whispers to us constantly. Our failures are clear as day as the mounting suffering keeps mounting, and you think, God, this passage is great, but it's not for me. I think you got it wrong about me. I can't keep fighting this fight. I, I keep losing. I keep falling. I, I can't resist the temptations. I'm too weak. This passage is not for me. And if that's you, my brother, my sister, in your despair, let me remind you of one thing. Do not forget who writes this to us. This is Peter, the guy who rejected his Savior three times. Even after being told, you will reject me three times, and he said, no, no, God, I would never. This is the guy who rejected the Lord, betrayed him, threw him out, succumbed to the temptations of the devil to save himself, and yet Peter, this broken Peter, this failure Peter can tell us, you can stand firm and resist the devil. If he can say that, so can you and me. In his full confidence, he tells us we can resist, and so can we. Not because we are strong, not because we are wise or we are holy, but because, like Peter, we have a Savior who has witnessed our greatest treachery, and he still looks at you and says, my child, I still love you. I still care for you. You don't have strength? That's okay. I'll give you mine. You don't have wisdom? That's okay. I'll give you mine. You don't have holiness? I'll give you my son. 
That's why we can stand firm in hope. No matter what comes. And that's important. And that's our final point, which is we are to stand firm by hoping in him. We are to stand firm by hoping in him. Look at verse 10. Peter wraps it up here with a few uh, truth bombs. And you have to understand, he's not just adding words here because he has a, a word count he needs to meet. He's putting these descriptions about God in here so that we can hope. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. <laughs> Do you see what he's saying? He is challenging us in every way. First, he challenges our perspective of time. After you have suffered a little while. Again, there's that vague description there. It doesn't tell us how long, whether it's three years, three decades. He doesn't give us a specific time because he wants us to understand it doesn't matter how long you suffer. It doesn't matter who you are and what you're suffering. This applies to you. That vagueness is on purpose, and it's a glorious vagueness because, in other words, that means for each of us, no matter who you are, what you're going through, your suffering is only for a little while. Only for a little while. And I, I mean, you might look at that and you might protest. You're going through immense pain and suffering. I, I, I don't know what each of you have gone through. I know during COVID, as, as a staff, as a pastor, we've heard of immense suffering of some of you in our, in our family. Immense suffering, loss of family members, loss of friends, loss of community, separation, de depression, anxiety, all these things that COVID has brought upon us and exacerbated. And yet somehow Peter can come to us and say, it's only for a little while. We think of the woman who bled for 12 years before she was able to touch Jesus' uh, robe and, and be healed, or, or John Bunyan, not brother of Paul Bunyan, but the writer, uh, uh, John Bunyan, who, who, who sat in prison for, for, for 12 years writing these amazing works of, of faith. Right? Or the unnamed believer in China, in Afghanistan, in North Korea, who, who's lost their family, their home, their work, and is about to lose their life. How can we turn to these people and say it's only for a little while? And you see, what Peter is challenging us to do is to correct our perspective. To step back. To see things in light of eternity. And he, he wants us to see reality. It's, it's the same thing that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 when he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Then in 2 Corinthians, he, says, he calls it a light momentary affliction. A light, momentary affliction. Yes! I think both Peter and Paul would uh, agree with you. Suffering is miserable. Especially this suffering that we uh, encounter in this life as Christians. It is painful. It is hard. And I, I don't think either of these guys wants to, to make it seem small or to say that your suffering is not that bad. But what they're saying is, in light of the glory that is to be revealed to us, in light of the, the amazing eternal truth of being able to come into fellowship with our Father, to be able to see our Savior face to face. He's saying, when we get to experience that glory, these sufferings we're encountering right now will seem minuscule. In fact, it'll be so glorious to know our God that these momentary and light afflictions will not be for, for even remembered anymore. They will be forgotten. They, there's no way we can even think about those because of how great our God is. 
of how sweet it is to be in His presence. They are small, they are brief in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed to us. It is short. Peter then forces us not just to reflect on on timing, but also to reflect on God's character and what He's done for us. He describes him as the God of all grace in, chapter t- in verse 10. Then in verse t- 11, he, calls, he says, this God has dominion over all things forever. This God is a giver of all good things, a giver of all blessings to his children. He is also an unstoppable, unstoppable God. He is above all. This gracious and indomitable God acts on our behalf and he calls you into eternal glory with his son to share in it. Wayne Grudem says this, This comforting thought is strengthened by the reminder that God is the God who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That is the realm that really counts for it lasts forever. In that realm, the manifold excellence of God's character is given spectacular expression in his eternal glory, something that ordinarily would cause us to remain distant in fearful awe, yet God has decided that we should not remain distant, but that we should be summoned into the midst of his own glory. Yes, even that we should come in Christ to share in it partially now and more fully in the life to come. Here is the promise of abundant grace sufficient to overcome any suffering in this life. He gets it, right? Paul or Peter wants to point to this reality to come, this glorious reality. uh, And he's saying when we are with our God because of Christ, because of our Son, when we come face to face with our Savior, we will receive a grace that is able to wipe every tear from our eye. That will be able to vanquish every scar we have on our hearts. Every pain, every moment of difficulty that you've experienced, it will be wiped away because we get to have God. We get to be with Him. And He says, come closer to me. Let me hold you. And and don't, don't miss out that incredible part, the second part of verse 10, where it says, God Himself will restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He himself. Note what that says there. God is not going to outsource his care to you, to someone else. He will not turn to any other angelic being, any other person, and say, you care for that child. No, he says, I myself will come and restore you. I will take it upon myself. I promise I will care for you. Every wrong that you've endured, I see it. Every bit of malicious comments or slander that you've experienced, I hear it. Every slap that you've endured, I felt it. And I will right every wrong. I will restore you. I will make you whole again. I will bring you into glory with my son. That is my promise to you. No one else but me. I will take care of you. And it will remain like that for all of eternity. Because once I restore you, there's going to be no undoing of it. You will never have to experience these things again. This is the true grace of God, which we see in verse 12, where he says, By a Salvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is what we are to stand firm in and hope in. It is the fact that our God himself personally will take care of us. And that allows us to withstand all that comes our way. And we are able to stand firm forever in his graciousness. Let me finish with another Peter. We've heard from Peter here. And I want to turn our attention to Peter Ho, a father of Ethan, 
who we prayed for last week. Uh, it's one of our eighth graders, our youth, who's been going through incredible, incredible pain and suffering as he's gone through brain surgery uh, and is currently going through intense physical and occupational therapy in order to relearn the very things we take for granted, to speak, to walk, to have control of his extremities. This poor child has endured so much in the last month, things that you and I probably will never have to endure. And this is his father as he is watching his son go through this immense suffering. And as his family is trying to wrestle with what is going on, he he sent thoughts, things that he's been working through as a believer watching his own son suffer. And and I had to ask him, like, can I share these things? And he said, of course. And uh, just listen to what he says. Over the last two weeks, as I woke up every countless and sleepless night, how I much wanted, I, I, how much I really wanted these bad and unfortunate things happening to Ethan to be just a very bad dream. How much it aches our hearts to see Ethan at such a young age suffer like that. But no matter how many millions of teardrops we have shed, we still have to move on and accept the fact that God might have different plans for him than his peers. The Christian life is no walk in the park or a bed full of roses. I think we're going to have trials in our walks of Christian life, whether we see it or not. Some obstacles are permitted to happen by God so that we can get closer to him and lean on him and trust in him. He will always provide the strength when we are weak. He will give us the hope when we are in despair. When we are sick, he will heal us. I think being faithful to God is a matter of choice to either reject it or accept it, and we choose to accept it. I think this is what it honestly looks like to hope in God. There's no false understanding that there's no suffering, no pain, or if you become a Christian, you never have to endure any sort of, of, of difficulty. No, he sees very clearly what it's like to see suffering in this broken world, and he recognizes it as, as he watches Ethan. And yet, despite all that he's going through, he leans on the character of God, and he says, this God will care for me. He'll take care of my family. When I'm in despair, He will hold me and comfort me. When I'm in pain, he will wipe away my tears. He will give me the strength when I have nothing left. This is my God. I want to hope in him. I want to trust in him. And friends, I want that for us. That's what Peter wants for us. Stand firm in the grace of God because it is able to give us all we need. And one day, I don't know what you're going through, guys. I know some of us are going through great pains, but I want to point you to this incredible promise. When you're able to to think, when you're feeling like you're about to crumple, be, be overwhelmed by the waves that are hitting you, cling to the gospel, cling to the steady anchor of Christ and know that his foundation is firm and secure. He will not let you stumble and fall to the point of destruction. He will restore you. He himself will confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. This is our God, and he is worth hoping in. Let me pray for us. God, we we need you. I don't know what we as a church are going through. I don't know what personally each of us are suffering through, wrestling through. But we do know that you are good. We know that you are faithful. We know that you are steadfast, loving, and kind. God, would you hold our brothers and sisters close to yourself, especially those of us in here who are in pain, who are really wrestling through a lot, whether it's at school, at work, at home, in their own hearts. 
God, pull them close to you. Whisper and scream, in fact, loudly to them that you care for them and that you will never abandon them and you will, in fact, restore them yourself. You will comfort them. Father, give us the strength to stand firm in you in the gospel, knowing that we are your child and we will forever be to the end of the days. We long to see you face to face. We long to be in your presence forevermore. God, come soon. Bring us all near to you as the day draws nearer and nearer. Praise in your son's name. Amen. Mm-hmm.